You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer, Lord. It is in the power of Christ that we stand. It's in the grace of Christ. It's in the mercy of Christ. It's in the love of Christ. It's in the faithfulness of Christ. This is is why we are standing in your presence right now, all because of Jesus Christ, because of his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, satisfying the the wrath for sin that all of us deserve because of our wickedness, because of our iniquity, because of our rebellion, but because of your great power and your great mercy, because of your love and your grace, we are standing in your presence. We are welcomed as your sons and as your daughters adopted into your family. And God, I pray right now that as your word is open, God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying, God, that you would give us eyes to to see you as you truly are and to see ourselves, Lord, as we truly are. Give us hearts to to believe and minds to understand, Lord. We pray that, that your spirit would work powerfully in this moment, God, that you would lead us and speak to us and instruct us and teach us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, You can open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We're going to end up in Isaiah 6, but I want to start in 2 Chronicles 26. If you don't have a Bible right now, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle um, to uh, pass out Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, now you do. This is our gift to you. If you just left yours at home, you can just leave it behind on your way out, but just raise your hand as they're making their way up and down your aisle. You know, there's a, a concept that human beings have been wrestling with and talking about really as long as storytelling has been happening on planet earth. It's called hubris. And that might sound like a body part that you could injure. You know, I have a, a hubris injury. I'm getting surgery on my hubris. But no, hubris is it, it's, it's a word used to describe overconfidence or pride. And it's, it's woven into just about every aspect of our culture. We see it in everyday life. We see it in politics. We see it in sports. We see it uh, in, 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 in the markets, in the financial world. This idea of prideful overconfidence that leads to a blindness to, to, to true reality that causes people to tune out and not receive advice. It goes all the way back to Greek mythology. Icarus had been given this incredible pair of wax wings, but he was warned, don't fly too close to the sun. But when Icarus started flying, the Greek myth goes on to say that he got so overconfident and hubris took over, pride took over, and the counsel that he had received about flying too close to the sun was ignored, and he flew too close to the sun, and his wings melted and he crashed to the ground. Now you may not be f- familiar with too much Greek, Greek mythology, neither am I. I had to go to Wikipedia to double check that one. But we all know the story of the tortoise and the hare, don't we? Uh, the tortoise ends up winning. Why does he win? Because of hubris. Because the rabbit, the hare thought, I'm stronger, I'm faster, I'm better. I can take a break along the way. I'll have a nap. Maybe it's time to have a sandwich. Meanwhile, the tortoise was just moving along slowly. It was hubris. It was pride. It was overconfidence that destroyed 
the, the, the hare's chances of winning. The Bible tells us about this. Proverbs 16, 18, you could probably finish it for me. Pride comes before a fall. And, and, and we see so many examples of this in Scripture that when someone becomes proud, you almost brace yourself because you know that they're going to crash in just a matter of moments. And God loves us and he wants to protect us from hubris, protect us from pride, so that we can embrace humility. So that we can walk in a way that honors the Lord, thinking rightly about him. And as we're in this series called Trusting God for More, we've been looking at these different moments in the biblical story where God has been calling his people to something greater. And Abraham needed more faith. And Moses needed more obedience. And Joshua needed more courage. And last week, David needed more generosity. And today, as we are thinking about what it means for us as a church, moving from this facility to a new facility, as we think about what it means to be planting a new church, we need to be trusting God for more humility. The, the, the danger that faces us as individuals and us as a church, as good things are happening, for us to start you know, thinking, yeah, man, we're planting a church. We're moving into this great new, lots of really exciting things are happening. And so we need to be reminded of the, 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 the central importance of humility in our everyday lives. And what we're going to see from God's word today is how he allows his people to embrace humility. Three things that all of us need to understand in order to embrace and live a life that avoids hubris and embraces Humility. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles is a book of historical biographies of all of the kings of Judah. And this is the biography of a king named Uzziah. Look at verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he ran, reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. We had a pretty shocking outcome uh, to, the, uh, to, to the election this past Thursday. And uh, and the, the province is going to look very, very different now. And uh, in Niagara West, there was a, there was a, a, a pretty shocking outcome in that a riding. And because there's a, there's a 20-year-old MPP uh, who was elected out of that riding. But the, even the shocking thing is he was the incumbent. He became the MPP when he was 19. And the other people that he was running against, the average age was 21. They were all under the age of 22, the four people that were running for that riding. Now that's just simply being a, a, a member of parliament for the province at, at 19 years old. That causes us to kind of scratch our heads. I mean, the guy's a student at Brock in political science. You would think you'd at least need an undergrad to, to qualify to be a politician. But... But think about becoming the king of a nation at 16 years old. But Uzziah had some great uh, advisors. And he managed to rule and to reign for five decades, for 52 years. We don't hear about Uzziah uh, too much, but he is one of the greatest kings in the history of the, the nation of uh, Judah. Look down at, at verse 5. It says, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him. In the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Verse 6. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath. That's Goliath's hometown. And, and 
and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod. He, he, the, the Philistines, in the days of Saul and in the days of David, they were continually at war against the Philistines, weren't they? And it was Uzziah who finally broke through the wall and built cities in Philistine a territory. Verse 7 says, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The, the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt. For he became, underline this in your Bible, he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. Now, Uzziah's father had challenged the northern kingdom to a battle and lost, and during that battle, much of the wall around Jerusalem was actually torn down. And so Uzziah not only rebuilt the wall, Uzziah made it stronger. He built all of these uh, towers. Verse 10 goes on to say, he even built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. So he was a military genius. He, he enjoyed farming. He was prosperous. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers of the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. And the whole number of the heads of the fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men. So he had a team of military engineers who created these catapults. It says he put them on the, on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was, and underline this, until he was very strong. Now here comes the hubris. Verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. When he started to experience success, he became proud. He became overconfident. It says, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the, the priest, went after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. So he goes into the temple to offer incense and not only does one priest go in and says, no, you shouldn't do that, 80 80 priests who were men of valor. That's a crowded temple. And, and they are in there trying to reason with Uzziah. You can't do this. You shouldn't do this. You are going against what God's law says. But hubris, the pride, the overconfidence blinded Uzziah. Verse 18, they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. But for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. In the presence of the priests and in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense, 
And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the first to the last, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. This all happened during the days of Isaiah. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah. You're going to go past the book of Second Chronicles into Ezra and Nehemiah, Job, Psalms, and eventually you'll hit the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And it's in Isaiah chapter 6 where we are going to see three things that all of us need to understand and embrace if we are going to avoid the kind of hubris that Uzziah experienced. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So now we get the background. Now we understand that this person had been reigning for five decades and the stability and the prosperity that he brought and the success that he had but then the horrible the horrible conclusion to his reign and how the how the nation would have been would have reacted in that moment that their king is dead and that he did not finish well it says in the year that king Uzziah died I saw the lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If we are going to embrace humility in our lives, which means that we are going to avoid hubris, Loved ones, we need to understand this first concept. And this is where it all begins. We need to understand the holiness of God. We need to understand the holiness of God. Uzziah went into that temple. And he went in not recognizing that God was a holy God. Uzziah went in thinking that he could change the rules or make up the rules as he went along. Uzziah was not in touch with the holiness of God. And Isaiah has this vision And in this vision, he hears these seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew word uh, that's that's being translated uh, holy there is the word uh, kodesh. The the, the Greek word is is hagios. We're we're first introduced to this concept of being holy in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, he made a day, a holy day. The Sabbath he called holy. Holy, that's the first time that word is used. And then you fast forward to to the burning bush instance where God appears to Moses and he tells Moses, take off your sandals because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And then Moses goes back to Egypt and the people are set free after all of the plagues and walking through the Red Sea and Egypt is destroyed. And they go back to that place, the same mountain where the bush was burning. And then God calls the people in that moment in Exodus chapter 19. He calls them a holy people. So you have a holy day and then you have holy ground. And then he speaks to, to a group of people and he calls them a holy people. And then he he takes an offering and they build this giant tent that is supposed to be a place of worship. And he calls that the holy place. 
And now in Isaiah chapter 6, we are told that God is holy. That holy is the word that's used to describe who God is. Now holiness communicates the idea of separateness and superiority. It, 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 it establishes the idea of being different and being distant. And it's describing that God is, when, when we're talking about God as holy, that God is the creator and all of us are creatures. The distance between creator and creature, that massive gulf between us and God is a gulf called holiness. He's different from us and not only is he just very different, he is also Distant. He is, he, is, he is so far beyond what any of us could ever imagine. But it's not just simply that he's so separate from us, but it's also that he is superior to us. When, when we talk about God being holy, listen, there are things that we have in common with God. We're made in his image. God is a God of love. And we know what it means to love other people and to experience love, don't we? But God's love is a holy love. His love is totally superior to ours. We love other people when we feel like it. We love other people when we feel like there's some reciprocity and they're loving us back. But God's love is a totally different love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It, it's a transforming love. It's a holy love. It's superior to our form of love. We have a sense of justice and right and wrong, don't we? We, we want... We want we want the truth to come out. We, we want justice to be paid. We want people to be, to be punished. We want retribution to, to happen when we know that things have gone wrong. But our, our perception of justice is completely inconsistent, isn't it? I mean, when, it's, when we're the guilty one, we look for leniency. When someone else is guilty, we like bring the hammer. But God's sense of justice is, is it's holy. It's, it's superior to ours. It's greater than ours. But holiness also, when you look at the Sabbath, the holy day, and the, the, the mountain, the holy ground, and the people, the holy people, there's a sense in which there's separation, that, that the Sabbath was a day separate from the other six days of the week, that the nation of Israel were, were a nation that was separate from the other nations, but it's not just that separate isn't enough. To, to describe holiness. There's this idea of separate for a purpose, devotion. That, that the ground was devoted to God. The nation was devoted to God. And so holiness also involves this idea of devotion. And God is a devoted God. He is faithful in fulfilling his promises. The reason why his love is holy is because he's devoted to love. The reason why his justice is so far above ours is because he is devoted to justice. And everything, everything that Isaiah saw in that moment gives us a greater picture, a greater understanding of what the seraphim were saying, that God is holy. First of all, in verse 1, it says that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So God is sovereign. He's in charge. There was no question when Uzziah died and Jotham was trying to, to, to establish power, there was a question of, is Jotham really going to last on the throne? Who's really in charge here? But Isaiah had this vision in the state of transition for that nation. God was the one who was on the throne. He is the one who is in charge. Then it says that he is high and lifted up. 
It's described twice in two different ways. The idea is that God was somehow, he's sitting on a throne, but he's way up there. He's high and lifted up. He's distant. He's transcendent. He's separate. Isaiah's down here, but God is holy. He's way up there. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Some scholars believe that the reason he could only see the train of his robe is because his eyes were looking down. But he said, no, he was high and lifted up. The way I read this is that he's so high up there that all Isaiah can really make out is the train of his robe, the hem of his, of his garment. And that's what's sort of dangling down from the throne that is high and lifted up and it's filling the whole temple with glory. And then these... These beings, it says, above him stood the seraphim. A seraphim simply means burning ones. So these creatures are on fire. They're in the presence of God. They are living beings, but they are burning ones. And they have six wings. Now R.C. Sproul just brilliantly points out that God as creator designs each creature so that it can live and thrive and survive in a particular habitat. So fish have gills so that they can live underwater. And polar bears have thick white fur so that they can survive in the Arctic. And birds have these tiny bones and are very lightweight and have feathers and wings so that they can live in trees and fly from branch to branch. These, each creature was specifically designed to exist and thrive and survive in a particular habitat. And the same is true for these seraphim. They were designed as burning ones with six wings so that they could survive in the presence of a holy God. And they survive by covering themselves. And they survive by covering their eyes so that they would not look on the Lord because if anyone were to look on God, they would surely die. And then two extra wings just to be able to fly and to fulfill whatever God has called them to do. And they shouted, holy, holy, holy. Now, in English writing, if you want to emphasize something, if you're writing an email to someone and you want to really highlight something, you've got a whole bunch of options. I mean, you can put it in all capitals. You can put it in bold and italics and underline. You can even highlight it. You can put it in a different color. I mean, you can add a couple of emojis if you want. But in, in, in Hebrew writing, you didn't have that option. You, you, there was no underlining, there was no bold. What you did if you wanted to emphasize something as this is really important and this is really big and this is really serious is you just repeated it. And so God is described not just as holy, but as holy, holy, holy. In the book of Genesis, when Abraham is rescuing his knucklehead son, Lot, and he's fighting against all of these kings, the narrator says that one of the kings fell into a very deep pit as, he's, as he was trying to run away from Abraham. So in the English translations, there's a whole bunch of different ways of, of describing this pit and how deep it was, but in the Hebrew it just says, and he fell into a pit pit. It was a pit pit. That doesn't translate very well in, uh, in English, but the idea was it, was, it was not just any small pit. This was a seriously big pit that he uh, fell into. And so when it says that God is holy, 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 that's supposed to capture our attention. That God is so holy. That he is so different 
that he is so separate, that he is so superior, but that he is so devoted to all that he is and has promised. Then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. That what Isaiah was seeing in the context of the temple was really a picture of what is true of the whole world. The whole world is filled with evidence that there is a holy God, a God of glory. And not only is this what, not only was Isaiah's vision a description of what the whole earth is about, this is what heaven is about. In, in Revelation chapter 4 of verse 8, it talks about four living creatures, each of them with six wings. These are probably the seraphim. And, and then there's a little bit more description that's given. They're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so Isaiah had this picture, this vision of the holiness of God. And loved ones, if we are going to avoid pride and the destruction and the danger that hubris brings into our lives, we must understand the holiness of God. That's the first key in living a life characterized by humility. Verse 4 says, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is a, this is a, 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 a small picture of what happened at Mount Sinai. The mountain was shaking. Now the, the, now the foundations, the threshold, the doorway of the temple is shaking. The, the mountain was smoking at Mount Sinai at the presence of God. There's smoke in the temple. And check out Isaiah's reaction, verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's the second thing we're going to need to embrace if we're going to live lives of humility and avoid the dangers of hubris and pride. We're going to need to come to grips with the sinfulness of humanity. We're going to need to come to grips with the sinfulness of humanity. And that humanity includes me. And that humanity includes every person in this room and every person on the planet. Now Isaiah chapter 6 makes a lot more sense, doesn't it, once we understood the context of Uzziah's life. It, it brings a whole lot meaning, a whole lot more meaning to, to verse 1 when it says in the year that Uzziah died, because we understand 52 years, we understand the way that he, the way that he, he died and, and, and the tragic failure of, of his pride. So understanding Uzziah really helped us understand this passage. Similarly, in order to understand this passage, we're going to have to understand Isaiah. And who is this Isaiah? And what kind of a person was he before he had this vision of God's holiness? Well, let's just look at the chapter that comes before, uh, before chapter 6. Look at Isaiah chapter 5 and find verse 8. These were the kinds of things that Isaiah, well-meaning, trying to serve the Lord, these were the kinds of things that Isaiah would say. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Isaiah tells, tells the rich people, who are engaged in real estate acquisition. And he says, woe to you for joining house to house. And, and the gentrification that's happening. And the poor people who are being pushed out. There's, there's no more room for the regular people. Because all these wealthy people are buying up all of the property. And Isaiah says, woe to you. 
Then verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. I guess the bars in Jerusalem opened a little earlier than they did in Brampton. Early in the morning, they're, they're, they're seeking after strong drink. So he goes after not just the rich people, but the party people. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with, as with cart ropes. People who lie. People who wrap and draw people in and tie them up in lies. He says, woe to you, to the dishonest people, to the liars, to the cheats. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah gets his, his apologetics hat on and he goes after the, the moral relativists and the philosophers who say that there is no such thing as objective truth. And Isaiah says, woe to you. Verse 21, he says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to the intellectuals. Verse 22, he's back on the party people. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. So in verse 5, Isaiah, or sorry, in chapter 5, six different times, Isaiah, he's pointing the finger, isn't he? Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you! But he gets a vision of who God is, and what does he say? Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. You know, I looked pretty incredible on the soccer pitch yesterday. My boys wanted to go over to the schoolyard, so my nine-year-old and seven-year-old were there, and we were kicking the soccer ball around. I dominated. I seemed like a pretty awesome soccer ball. My kids were standing in awe of me. I'm going to tell you, man. Once they learn about people like Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Lionel Messi, they're not going to think I'm so great anymore. And I'm not going to think I'm so great anymore if I ever found myself on a pitch with a player like that. You see, we can all think we're pretty awesome when we're saying woe to you and woe to you. When we're comparing on a, on a scale that favors us. And really, because all human beings are sinful, it doesn't matter who we're comparing ourselves. We can always find some sort of fly in some other person's ointment to make us feel better about ourselves. We can always be saying woe to those. As long as we're thinking horizontally, we think we're okay. But as soon as we look vertically at the holiness of God, that is a whole other story. Isaiah says, woe is me. And then he says, I am lost. If you have a different translation today, it might say, I am ruined. It might say, I am undone. Another way to translate that phrase, I am lost, is I am silenced. I'm speechless. And I believe that, that he was zeroing in on that idea of silence when he chose that word because of what he says next. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's all about his lips. It's all about his speech. And I believe what is happening for Isaiah right now is he is seeing the glory of God, the holiness of God. He's seeing the seraphim and he's seeing these creatures, these beings that were created and designed to declare the holiness of God, to proclaim the glory of God. And Isaiah said that's the reason why they were created, to display and proclaim the glory of God. And Isaiah realized afresh that's the reason why I was created. 
I was put on this earth. I was created by a holy God so that I would use my mouth for no other reason but that to proclaim and praise the holiness of God. And Isaiah in that moment realized how short he had come in fulfilling the purpose for which he had created. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all created for God's glory. We were all created so that we would praise and proclaim his holiness. But our sin is our failure to live and act and speak in such a way that declares that God is great. And Isaiah knew that. He wanted to join in the song of the seraphim, but he knew that he couldn't. He knew that his lips were unclean. And the Bible clarifies, out of the overflow of of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it wasn't just a lip problem, it was a heart problem. So he talks about his lips, and notice how he describes his lips. He describes them as being unclean. Unclean. In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, it talks about what someone should do if they contract leprosy. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. This, This was the means by which they protected the disease from spreading. They lived in quarantine, but if ever they had to move from one place to the next to warn other people that someone with a contagious disease was coming along, they had to walk through the streets and say, unclean, unclean. And you know, the first words out of Uzziah's mouth, when he walked out of that temple, after his pride, after his hubris caused leprosy to go on his forehead and then spread to the rest of his body, the first thing he would have needed to say when he walked out of that temple with all of those priests, they would have, had, they, they would have been encouraging him, start shouting Uzziah, and Uzziah, the king, would have had to say, unclean, unclean. And Isaiah in this moment says, what was true of Uzziah physically is true of me spiritually. That I am unclean. And and this theme finds its way all throughout the book of Isaiah. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 64 verse 6. He says, we all have become like one who is unclean. Notice the change in tone in Isaiah. It's no longer you, you, those, those. No, we We, we all have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the good things that we do can't give us favor with God. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You see, Isaiah knew what it was to be a sinful human, someone who had done things they shouldn't have done, someone who had said things they shouldn't have said, someone who had thought things they shouldn't have thought. And he knew that there were no, there were no good thoughts that could somehow erase his bad thoughts. There were no good deeds that could erase his bad deeds. There were no good words that could erase his bad words. What was done was done. That's why he said that he was lost, that he was ruined, that he had come undone. He says, for I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He knew that disintegration is really the only option when a sinful human being enters into the presence of a holy God. A God who is fully devoted to justice. The only right thing would be for that person to be completely disintegrated and destroyed. 
Now, if Isaiah were on the throne, the story would have ended there. But Isaiah is not the one who's on the throne. God is the one who is on the throne. And not only is God fully devoted to justice, but God is also fully devoted to grace. He's fully devoted to mercy. He's fully devoted to love. That's part of his holiness. And one doesn't contradict the other. God doesn't turn off justice and then turn on love and then turn, on, turn off love and turn on wrath and then turn off wrath so that he can turn on grace. No, all of them are present. He is holy. They are there all at once. And so God sends one of these burning beings to approach Isaiah. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Here's the third thing. If we want to live lives of humility and avoid the danger of hubris, we need to understand the beauty of the forgiveness of the gospel. The forgiveness of the gospel. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, and the forgiveness of the gospel. Isaiah 57, verse 15, we're gonna see this on the, on the screen. It talks about where God dwells. It says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is a description of our holy God. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. That's where Isaiah is right now. He's seeing him high and lifted up. This is where God dwells. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, this is why things went well for Isaiah. Because Isaiah knew that he had come to the end of himself and there was nothing that he could do to earn favor with God. If Isaiah came to God in that moment and said, okay, you're a holy God, let me come up with a list of my imperfect holiness acts and the different things that I've done and let me show you God and present to you all of my good deeds, that would not have gone well for Isaiah. He would have been obliterated in that moment. But because Isaiah humbled himself in that moment and realized his own sinfulness, his own depravity, his own need for grace, that was when God said, that, that's someone that I can go to. I dwell in a high and holy place, but if someone is broken and contrite, I move to them. I am drawn to them. Those are the kinds of people that I can rescue and that I can save. One of the frustrating misconceptions about Christianity is that people who aren't Christians wrongfully assume that Christians are just these high and mighty people who think that they're better than everyone else and stand on the moral high ground and look down their noses at others. That is not the gospel. You need to understand the forgiveness of the gospel. The Christians are forgiven people and they live differently because they've experienced this radical transformation of being forgiven for their sin. It's not that they're better than other people. It's simply that they are forgiven. And Isaiah experienced that. He experienced that by a coal coming from the altar in verse 6. The altar was a place of sacrifice. People would come and bring an animal, and that animal would be their substitute. And as that animal was being slain, they would be, they would be mentally thinking and even audibly saying, what is about to happen to this animal should happen to me because of my sin. And that animal would be killed and then that animal would be burnt to a crisp. 
And that animal would die in place of the person because that person was a sinner and the wages of sin is death. So from the place of sacrifice, from the altar, the seraphim brought a coal and touched Isaiah's lips, gave him the gift of forgiveness and said to him, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So now Isaiah has lips that can praise God, that can fulfill the purpose for which he was created. Not because of anything Isaiah did or said, but all because of what God did. And loved ones, that place of sacrifice ultimately points us to the ultimate sacrifice that was made by Jesus Christ. In fact, in an off, seemingly offhand comment in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verse 41, let me show you this on the screen. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. And then John adds, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, adds this brief annotation. And this is what he says. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The his and the him is Jesus. The one that Isaiah saw on the throne was the pre-incarnate, glorified Son of God, Jesus Christ. He saw him and he wrote about him and spoke of him. And Isaiah couldn't join the song of the seraphim because of his unclean lips, but forgiveness made that possible. And loved ones, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you trust not in an animal sacrifice at the altar, but Christ once for all sacrifice for you on the cross, then you have been made holy, both positionally once and for all when God justified you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, but then also progressively as the Spirit lives inside of you and you are putting sin and iniquity to death in your daily life, that you can join that song all for this reason, because the one who, who's the very train of his robe, just the lower end of his garment filled the temple with glory, the one who had a robe like that was stripped of his robe and people gambled for it at the foot of his cross. You can sing that song with the seraphim because the one who was high and lifted up chose to become low and serve and be despised. You can, you can sing the song with the seraphim because the one who was on the throne chose to go to the cross. You can, you can sing the song of the one who was surrounded by seraphim who are continually saying, Holy, 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 because Christ was nailed to a cross and the criminals on either side hurled insults at him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the crowd and the rabble-rousers mocked him while he hung and bled for our sin. So that Christ can say to us, like the seraphim said to Isaiah, your sin is taken away, your guilt is atoned for. Loved ones, this is the gospel. And this is how we walk in humility. When we understand that God is holy, we are sinful. But God has chosen to forgive us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray uh, together. And so, Heavenly Father, as we are about to open our mouths and sing from our lips to declare your holiness, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that it would flow from a heart that is humble, 
from a heart that understands who you are, a heart that understands who we are, and a heart that understands the beauty and the power of the gospel. God, protect us from ourselves. Protect us from pride. Protect us from hubris, Lord. I pray that we would walk in humility all the days of our life because we would remember and appreciate and delight in the gospel all the days of our life. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, as we are clothed in his righteousness, as we are now filled with your spirit, Lord, may you be pleased with this offering of worship, God. It's our desire right now in this moment to join in the song of the seraphim and to declare with them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So be present with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.